Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Tonight, I'm beginning this little two-part series on uh, the bride and the kingdom. And I don't want to speak on the bride of Christ. If you have your Bibles, take those and turn to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. It's a lengthy chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we will use the entire chapter for this teaching tonight. Someone may say, look, uh, some man may say, look, I don't, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with sermons on the bride of Christ. Uh, let me tell you, some years ago, I got invited, invited back to speak at... Uh, chapel service at my alma mater at Emory University, where I did my master's degree, and uh, I spoke on the man in Christ is a new creation. And afterward, one of the female students came up to me, and she was ripped out of the frame. I mean, she was, she was cranked. She said, I hated your sermon. It was sexist. It left me out. She said, if the man in Christ is a new creation, then who am I? I'm nothing. And she said, how can I be a man in Christ? And I said, if you don't understand how you can be a man in Christ, then you're not going to understand how I can be the bride of Christ. (laughs) The last time I got married, I was the groom. The next time I get married, I'm going to be the bride. That doesn't threaten my masculinity at all. He comes to me in the garden, and he whispers sweet love words to me. And he says, thine eyes within thy locks are beautiful. You can't see that, but Jesus can. (laughs) So guys, stay with me now as we talk about the bride of Christ. Amen. I'm going to begin reading with Genesis 24, starting with verse 1 through 9. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country, to my kindred, and take a wife to my son Isaac, in Hebrew or Isaac, as we say in English. And the servant said unto him, Suppose that the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from where thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son there again. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke unto me and who swore unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from there. And if a woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring thou not my son there again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning that matter. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that your spirit will open our hearts and minds, and Lord, that we will receive a beautiful and encouraging word from you tonight. From you, Lord, despite frailty of speaker and resistance of receiver, may your divine communication occur in Jesus' wonderful name who is the bridegroom of the church. Amen and amen. I get so bored with all of these 
stories that people tell about their grandchildren. They're just so tedious and, and wasteful. But let me tell you about my granddaughter. Because now, no, she's different. We have six grandchildren and they are all sinless and perfect. It's a, no, it's a theological fluke, really, it is. Uh, I've now believed perfection is a recessive gene, that it skips a generation. I said that to my son, and he said, you know, it's the strangest thing, Dad. He said, that's just what Grandpa told me. <laughs> but among our six grandchildren, whom I love all of them equally, our little granddaughter, Juliet, who is six, going on 39, she is, she is a class A pistol. I, I would pay good money just to sit and talk with her. You never know what she is going to say. So the other day I was talking with Juliet and I said, Juliet, when you grow up, do you want to get married? She said, no. She said, I am not going to get married. And I said, why not? She said, I will tell you why, Papa. She said, because to get married, first of all, you have to have a boyfriend, and I do not want a boyfriend. She said, it's getting boyfriends and girlfriends that makes us all crazy. <laughs> do you know what? At this advanced age, I'm about to believe Juliet has had startling, blinding wisdom. If we could just skip the boyfriend and girlfriend stage and go right straight to the marriage stage, we might do better. In fact, I've been reading, I read an article recently about the, the 10 best ways to propose. I was flabbergasted. I, I was shocked that a woman would say yes under any of these circumstances. One was take her to a baseball game and put it up on the, pay to have it put up on the screen. Will you marry me? Any woman, self-respecting woman, should say right into the camera, no. <laughs> no, this should be private and romantic. And because you've asked me in front of all these people, I'd like to reject you in front of the same number. <laughs> Why can't they be as romantic as I was? <laughs> I made nearly the stupidest proposal that you could ever make. I had finished my freshman year in college, and my little girlfriend had made me crazy, was just about to finish her senior year in high school. I was not in a hurry to get married. I was willing to wait for her to graduate. <laughs> so we were on the way to her senior dance. And I, in a borrowed car, pulled the car onto the shoulder of the road and pulled out a ring that I had bought that morning at an estate sale. <laughs> and I said, will you marry me? You have to give them young before they have any discernment at all. <laughs> we have been married, yes. <laughs> That woman had a very masculine voice, didn't she? <laughs> well, you're a jolly crew tonight. But what if, what if we did it? Girls, I want to ask you, what if we did it the way Abraham did it? 
We're all the single girls in the house. Will you raise your hand? All the single girls in the house. That's a couple of you. Now listen to me. What if we said, we're not, you're not going to date anybody. You don't have anything to say about it. You're not going to get to meet him. In fact, you're not going to get to see him. We're going to find an elderly multimillionaire who will send his butler to a foreign country to find a groom for you and bring you back for him and you will marry him sight unseen. I wonder how many would go for that. Will you raise your hand? Look at several. No, they're ready. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm not giving an altar call for this, girls. Those of you that are watching in the streaming audience, if you will stream in the man that you would like them to marry, we will get that word to them. In this story from Genesis chapter 24, there are tremendous insights into the relationship between Christ and his bride. And I would like to give you some of these insights tonight. The first is, let's identify the characters in the play. First, there is Abraham, elderly Abraham. And this is not to say that God is old. God is eternal. He's unchanging. It is to say that his elderly stage stands for the wisdom of almighty eternal God. Abraham stands for God. Isaac, his son, obviously stands for Jesus. The bride, this beautiful bride, obviously stands for the church, the bride of Christ, the believers, and the servant of Abraham, his eldest servant, his trusted partner, is a, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just set the scenario. Abraham calls his servant in and says, I don't want my son to marry from among these Canaanites. I don't want him to have a, a bride of the world. I want him to have a bride that is of divine choice. I want him to have a bride that is perfect. I want him to have a bride that is worthy of him and a bride that is like us, the father, the servant, and the son. I don't want you to choose one of these. And if I should die before you get back, I want you to vow to me, I want you to promise to me that you will not settle for a bride from of one of these Canaanites. But I want you to go to my land, and I want you to find a, a woman that is like the three of us and bring her here. Take whatever you have to take, carry anything, and bring her back. The old servant is commissioned to, he says in English, it says, Put thou thy hand under my thigh. That's a very strange terminology. And there's some, I've, I've read several rabbinical writers on it, and there's a great deal of con confusion and discussion about what it means. But it seems odd, but we're used to thinking about sitting in a chair. But remember, these people weren't sitting in chairs. They were sitting on carpets and tents. So to put your hand under someone's thigh, we think of his thigh as being horizontal, this way. But that's not the way he's talking about He's saying, lay your hand flat on the carpet, kneeling in front of me. And then Abraham comes and kneels in the palm of his hand so that the vertical weight of his thigh is in that, in that servant's palm of his hand. Now, you think about it for a moment. You kneel down on the floor and put your hand palm up on the floor and let somebody else kneel in the palm of your hand, and you are totally defenseless. You're totally subject to their will. You're totally in a submissive posture. A child could kill you in that posture. So that servant is saying, I have no will of my own. 
The Holy Spirit responds totally to the will of the Father. He is on a holy commission. Now listen to this. I hear people say in their testimonies all the time, and I don't take offense at it. It's just that I want to point out to you that it's not really correct. And I may have even said it and may say it in the future, and I'd prefer you not throw my words into my teeth. But it's not really right. And that is, people say, I searched and searched and searched until I found the Lord. The fact of the matter is, you ran and ran and ran until he found you. You may have searched up some blind alleys, but I do not think you were searching diligently for the Lord, but he was searching diligently for you. God, the Father Almighty, has commissioned the Spirit of the living God to go throughout all the earth seeking, searching, moving. Even right now, there are people in this very room for whom the Holy Spirit is seeking. He's moving out through the audience, even through the airways, through through the streaming, out into homes, into a bedroom, into a motel room, where he is going out through a computer, out right out through the ways, reaching, searching, seeking, pulling. We used to call this prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. It's a great doctrine. We don't preach it much anymore, but we ought. Prevenient grace. It's from the ancient English word prevent. We use prevent now to mean to stop something, to hinder something. So we would say now two runners were running for the tape for the, to win the race and one prevented the other. It means he tripped him. But in ancient English, prevent meant to get there first. You can hear it if you think about the word pre, that's a prefix, first, pre-event, the event before the event. So prevenient grace is grace that gets there first. It's grace that works before you know it's working. Want it to work, cooperate with it, call for it, seek it, or even, or even want it. It is that seeking, searching ministry of the Holy Spirit. I was sitting in the, uh, in the, uh, airport, the Kodokai airport in Accra on my way home. It had been a difficult trip. Things were uh, under a great deal of difficulty. It's 1981. Ghana was going through a hard time. I was exhausted and tired and, and everything was kind of tense. There'd been some shooting and I was in the, in the airport just sitting on my suitcase waiting for him to call the flight. When an, uh, a Ghanaian man came up to me and he said, uh, I was the only, Obruni, only white man in the airport there, and he came up, he said, are you a priest? You know, the Lord will lead you. I said, let me ask you something. Are you a Catholic? He said, well, I, I, I am a Catholic by birth. I said, I'm all the priest you need. <laughs> I said, tell me what the issue is. He said, Father, I've been having this dream, and I want to tell you about it. Something has occurred to me that if I would tell a priest this dream, he could explain it to me. He said, I haven't been to church since my first communion. He said, I haven't been to confession. I, I wish you would hear my confession. But he said, the first thing I need to tell you about my dream. He said, I dream it almost every night. I dream it night after night after night after night. It's so clear to me. But it came to me lately. If I could just tell a priest this dream, maybe he could explain it to me. I said, all right, tell me about your dream. He said, the dream is this. I'm walking through a beautiful garden. And all of a sudden, a snake comes out and he begins to chase me. 
and he's striking at me. But the only place he wants to strike me is on my heel, on the heel of my foot. He's trying to strike me. And people will try to help me. They'll come out with a cutlass, uh, what do we call it in the U.S.? A, sh- a machete. Come out with a machete and cut its head off, but its head will grow back. And it's chasing me and chasing me. And people will try to hit it with stones and nothing will kill it. And I'm running and running and striking on my heel. And all of a sudden, he said, I can never see his face. But he said, great big hands reached down and picked me up and sit me in a chair in the sky. And then he comes over and he steps on the snake's head. And then he comes back and sits down in a chair right beside me. He said, do you think that has any meaning? <laughs> I said, come on. I, th- I thought I was on candid camera. I said, are you serious? You don't understand this dream? He said, no. I said, have you ever read the Bible? He said, Father, I I confess to you, I've never read the Bible. And I opened my Bible and began to show him that the serpent would bruise heel and that the, that the son, the seed of the woman would come and bruise his head. And then I showed him in the book of Ephesians that we would be lifted up to sit together with him in the spiritual domain. Tears were streaming down his face. And he said, I think God sent me that dream. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm just guessing. And he prayed with me right there in the, in the airport to receive Christ as his Savior. Somebody might say, you know that, Rutland. He's, what a soul winner. That's not winning souls. That's shooting fish in a barrel. The Holy Spirit is seeking, searching. That, that old servant is the wise servant of God, the Holy Spirit, who has no independent will of his own, never operates outside the sovereign vow that he is under, that he will operate in concert with the will and purpose of God the Father Almighty. And that is, that purpose and will is to find you wherever you are tonight. It is God's will to send the servant, the Holy Spirit, to find you. So that servant, he piles up treasure, loads it on camels, and they're walking across the desert all the way back to find a bride for Isaac, for Isaac. And all the way back, the old servant is praying. The Holy Spirit is constantly seeking the mind, will, and purpose of God the Father Almighty. He is saying, God, let me, let me find them. Let me, let me see where they are. Let me see where they're hiding. Let me see the problem they're in. Let me see the hellhole where they are. Let me see the crack house where they're living. Let me find the troubled marriage where they are. Let me find them. Guide me to them. All the way across the burning desert, the old servant is praying. And he comes to an oasis. And he sits there by the well. And he says, this is my prayer. This is what I want. If you will, look at verse 10. 24 verse 10, and the servant took 10 camels and departed. Those 10 camels are loaded with treasure. For all the goods of his master were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city called Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. Let it come to pass 
that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. Listen to the test he puts down. That she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let her be the one that thou hast appointed. Oh, listen to me, girls. Do more than you're asked. The camels that you draw water for may be the very ones that carry you to your beloved. And it came to pass, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcha, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up, and the servant ran to meet her. Now listen to this. This old servant is saying, Lord, show me a bride that is perfect for Isaac, not a bride that's perfect for me. He doesn't want to... Look, girls, you don't want an old man to pick you out for a young man. Old man, he said, Lord, kissing, kissing's fine, but it don't last. Cooking lasts. He said, Lord, just show me a woman that can make cornbread. That's all I'm, that's all I'm asking about. Show me a woman that can make a fire while I sit on the couch. That's a, that's all I care about. But he, he says, Lord, that would be enough for me, but she needs to be beautiful for Isaac. Here comes Rebecca with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the old man says, young lady, would you please let me have a drink? I don't have anything to draw out of the well. She said, she said, old uncle, have a seat. Let me draw you a drink, and while you drink, I will also draw water for all your men and for all your camels. And the servant said, God has been good today. <laughs> so he reaches into the saddlebags and pulls out rings and bracelets and gold, and he starts putting them on this girl. Now, it says in English, an earring. But I hate to tell you this because it, it vexes me culturally, but what it actually means is a nose ring. I do not like to read that, and I don't like to know it. But that's what it says. So he puts an expensive nose ring in her nose. He puts a bracelet on her, puts gold around her necklace. and he, Well, it frightens her. It frightens her. And so she runs home. You know, an old man by the well starts putting jewels on you. I don't know. Is he lying? What's he want? She runs home and runs in the house. And she says to her brother, Laban, you remember Laban? He shows up later in the story. He's, a, he's not averse at all. His eyes are open to see gold. He can see it. He later cheats his nephew out of 14 years of his life and palms off an ugly woman on him. So when she, she runs in the house, she says, the craziest thing just happened to me. I drew water for an old man down at the well, and he started putting all this gold on me. Look at all his rings and nose ring and necklace and bracelets and everything. And Laban says, where is he? She said, well, I left him at the well. He says, you fool. And he runs to the well and gets him well about that time. Here comes the servant, and he comes to the house, knocked on the door, and he says, come thou, beloved of the Lord. Now, I'm going to speak to the young men. Listen to me. You pull up in, the, in front of the driveway of a future father-in-law. Don't pull up in a borrowed Volkswagen. 
you buy you a Porsche. <laughs> he opens the door and sees you climbing out of that Porsche, and he says, come thou, beloved of the Lord. <laughs> I pulled up in the driveway of my father-in-law in a borrowed Volkswagen. It did not go well. <laughs> he did not say, as Laban did, take the damsel and go. I don't remember him saying that now that I think it through. So he brings him in. He says, I have come. The servant says, I have come to seek a bride for the son of my master, Abraham's son, Isaac. And I've come to find her. And all of this gold can be hers. All of this can be hers. Now, listen to me. He does not do the bride price well. I've spent half of my life in Africa, and I understand how the bride price is negotiated. Even still in West Africa, there's a negotiation of bride price, and you don't start by saying, I'll give you everything I've got. You start with one scrongy goat. You work up. You work up from there. This servant says, I'll give you everything. I brought all this, all these 10 camels, 10 camels laden with gold, treasure, everything. I'll give you everything I've got. Now, listen to this. The bride of Isaac is sought. She is sought for. Secondly, she is bought. You are purchased with a great price. God did not do a deal for you. He didn't negotiate with Satan. He drained the blood out of Emmanuel's veins. He bankrupted heaven. He gave everything he had so that you might be purchased. He didn't try to do a deal. Many years ago, there was a an uh, elderly man whose wife had died some years before. He was living on Social Security, had almost nothing, living in a walk-up tenement flat in New York. And the only thing he had that he really treasured was a picture of his deceased wife in a beautiful little silver plate frame that he kept right by his bed. Every night he would take that picture, and it was of her on her wedding day in her wedding dress. And every night he would take that and kiss his picture and then go to sleep. One night while he was gone, thieves broke in. Of course, he didn't have anything for him to steal, but they stole that little picture. He was heartbroken. It's the only thing he cared about, the only trace of his little wife that he had left. One day on a cold January and the wind whipping through those concrete canyons like a knife, he passed by a pawn shop, and there it was in the window. He dashed in and he said to the man behind the counter, he said, how, how much for that? How much for that little frame uh, with the picture of the bride? And how much for that? And the the pawnbroker realizing that he had a live one, he said, let me ask you a question. What are you willing to give for it? He had just gone to the post office and collected his social security check for the whole month. He said, the only thing I've got is this social security check. I'll endorse it over to you right now. Why, that little frame wasn't worth but pennies, a few dollars. And the pawnbroker said, it's yours. And he signed over his social security check and walked out of the store with the, with the frame and his picture. The pawnbroker laughing, thinking to himself, what a sucker. But the people on the street heard the old man as he trudged up the sidewalk, holding the picture frame to his chest, saying, my bride, my bride, I've got you back. To him, the check was nothing. The money was nothing. It was all about the bride. Listen, do you understand how much your father sent the Holy Spirit to find you? And do you understand how much he was willing to pay for your redemption?
Being the bride of Christ is no small matter. You are sought for diligently, worldwide, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, and you were purchased at so great a price. At so great a price. Now the issue turns to Rebecca. His, her relatives say, well, let the girl stay with us for a little while. Let it, let, and the, the old servant says, no, we have to leave immediately. And Laban says, listen to this, let the girl decide for herself. This is very, very important. The bride can be sought for. The purchase price paid your redemption. But the decision to go and be a part of the bride is yours and yours alone. You have to decide. And everybody turns their eyes to this little teenage virgin. Think what a day she's had. She just went out to water her father's goats. Now she's laden with gold. She's got this old man wanting to take her to another country. Her family are saying, we got the treasure. Take the damsel and go. She doesn't know what to think. She's confused. She's just a teenager. She's never been out of the little village by this oasis. What should she do? Every eye turns to her. And she says three simple words. I will go. Every single person who steps out of the darkness and into the light, every single person who leaves loneliness and steps into fellowship with Christ, every single person who leaves and forsakes living on their own and becomes a part of the bride, sought and bought, must first of all make that decision. Lord, here am I. I will go. I will return with you. I accept the price that you've paid, and I believe it in all my faith. Now she gets on the camels. Listen to this. Is this romantic or what? She gets on the camel and starts the long trip back with that servant. Now, the Bible does not tell us what they talked about, but I know. Don't you? Because I know a little bit about young girls. All the way home, riding on that camel, she said, tell me about him. Tell me about him. Tell me what, what color are his eyes? The old servant says, well, brown. He's a first century Jew. What brown? <laughs> she said, yeah, but what, what color brown? Are they lustrous brown? Are they electric brown? Uh, tell me what color brown? Brown. He says, I'm old. Just brown. <laughs> tell me about his hair. Tell me about the sound of his voice. Is he kind to the animals? Is he soft-spoken? Is he gentle? Tell me what he's like. Do you know what I have found? The people who have known Jesus the longest want to hear about him the most. All the way on the journey. Don't you remember? Anybody in the Wisdom Club remember when we used to sing, Tell Me the Stories of Jesus? Right on my heart, every word. You know, our hunger for Jesus is not allayed, it's not satiated by knowing him. The more we know him, the more we want to know about him. Our appetite for him is increased the closer we get. They're riding along. Oh, tell me about him. Tell me what he's like. I mean, can you feel the sorry for this old servant? He's saying, oh God, will this trip never end? I went all the way alone across the desert thinking that was terrible. I've come all the way back with a teenage girl. Alone was good. 
finally, they're nearing Abraham's camp. There is a well there called the well, the well at Bir Lachairoi in Hebrew. It means the well of him that liveth and seeth me. And the, the waiting groom, Isaac, is sitting out there by that well. Don't you know he's saying, Lord, I'm sitting here and you see me. I know you see me. I know you live and you see me. But Lord, do you see her? Where is she? Is this like this? Why doesn't Hollywood have hold of this story? I mean, this is a girls. Is this not the greatest romance you've ever heard? And suddenly, as they come up over the top of a sand dune, she sees off in the distance a young man sitting beside a well. And something inside of her says, she says to the old servant, who is that over there by the well? He says, that's Isaac. And she jumps down from the camel and starts to run. And then scripture says, she covers herself with a veil. It says, you know, girls, you are so complicated. <laughs> really, I don't really. Am I right, guys? You know, it's what I'm saying. I'm here, I'm here. Don't touch me. No. What? What? Run and run and hold me. Kiss me. Let me put this veil up. But I mean, that's what I love about the Bible. It's so real. Suddenly, in his presence, she feels overcome and shy. Am I the only one that has ever come into God's presence and suddenly sensed, wait a minute, I ought not to be here. Everybody, we talk about come, therefore, boldly before the throne of grace. We're supposed to, but we come into God's presence boldly standing up. The closer we get, you know, we wind up coming down to our knees. You approach the throne standing up. When you get there, trust me, you're going to be lying down. She jumps down from her camel and starts running toward Isaac. And then when she sees him, she covers herself with the veil and he receives her. I love this passage of scripture near the end of the chapter. It's, I love this part right here. It says, and Isaac, verse 67, Isaac brought her into his mother, Sarah's tent and took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. There's nothing like a teenage bride to help you overcome grief. <laughs> he was comforted after his mother's death. And this is one of the great romances of Scripture. Now listen to this. This is one of the great romances of Scripture. Isaac and Rebekah had a wonderful marriage. Jacob, his son, and Abraham, his father, they had a rocky go. But let me just tell you something. Isaac and Rebekah were lifetime lovers. They loved each other. It's a great romance. Now listen to this. She was sought. She was bought. All of those gifts that were put on her, the bride is adorned with gifts. God wants to pour into the life of the bride of Isaac gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. He wants to bless your life with abundance and with power and with grace and with, and with beauty beyond anything that the world can imagine. He wants to, to pour these gifts on you. That's what happened in the upper room. The bride is adorned with gifts of supernatural power. 
God wants to, to pour out gifts upon your life. You were sought for. You were purchased at a great price. He wants to adorn you with gifts. Even the Holy Spirit himself is the earnest of our redemption. But then finally, you will be received into the presence of your beloved where you will share with him a life of eternal relationship. What a wonderful love story. What a beautiful love story. I don't know how many girls here would really be willing to let an old dude like me pick your husband. I probably would do a better job than some of you. If you will just let me, I'll give an altar call tonight. We'll put the girls on this side. All the boys over here on this side. Now let five other men out of the wisdom club and we'll, we'll choose who goes with whom. Because we're, we're old, nearly blind, and we won't be confused by looks. We'll... But at the end, now listen to this. The bride is sought, bought, beautified, and finally received by her beloved. You know, somehow or another, I don't know why, but in the church, we kind of quit talking about heaven. I don't know why. Maybe it's because our houses down here are so nice, we can't imagine that heaven will be any better. I don't know what it is. But listen, the day is going to come. When the last trump will sound, the sky is going to split open. He's going to roll up the, cl the clouds like a dirty tablecloth. We will cast off gravity. We'll rise to meet him in the air. We'll receive our glorified bodies. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. You think I'm going to look like this in heaven? I'm going to be tall in heaven. I'm going to get all my hair back. Amen, brother. And I will praise him on key eternally. It does not yet appear. Oh, think of the splendor. Think of the glory. Think of the, the romantic, splendid, cosmic moment when all the, the Son of God that we've talked about and read about. Tell me about him. Tell me about his eyes, how they see. Tell me about his voice. Tell me about his love. Tell me about his tenderness. When suddenly we alight from this world and we see him by the well of him that liveth and seeth me and we race into his arms and he wipes away every tear and he says, my bride, my bride at last, my bride at last. My servant, the Holy Spirit, sought for you and found you. I bankrupted heaven for your redemption. I glorified you with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And now I receive you into my eternal wonder. Everything that I have is yours. Many years ago, up in the hills in North Georgia, early part of the 1920s, there was a young girl working in her father's cornfield. She was miserable in the family she was in, family full of moonshiners. She worked in the cornfield for the father to take the corn and make mash. She was just miserable working with them. They were violent and crude, and, and she knew somehow, somehow, something in her said, I don't belong in this family, but she didn't see any means of escape. She was chopping weeds in the cornfield, and she stopped and leaned on the hoe and just gazing off into space as young girls do. When all of a sudden, she looked at the fence beside her 
And there was a young man there. A car was parked. She hadn't heard it drive up. She didn't hear him get out of the car. But he was standing there, leaning on the fence and gazing at her. And he said, young lady, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. The sun on your hair looks like a wheat field. What's your name? Where do you live? They began to talk. He said, listen, my father is a multimillionaire, and he's waiting on me. I have to go there. I have to see him. I have to take care of some business. But I'm coming back for you. Will you marry me? She said, I will. He said, I've got to give you a token, something, so that you will believe me. But I, I don't have a ring. I don't have anything. And he said, wait a minute. And he took a rubber band that he found in the ashtray of his car, and he wrapped that rubber band around her finger. He said, every time you look at that rubber band, I just want you to say, he's coming back for me. He's coming back for me. He kissed her lightly on the cheek, got in his car and drove away. She went home that day in the moonshiner's cabin, and everybody said, what's up with you? What, what, you look different. What's up with you? She said, a young man. Stopped by the fence today, got out of his big fancy car, and he said, he's coming back for me. He's coming back. He's going to marry me. Oh, they laughed. They said, you're just trash. You're from trash family. We're all trash. You're trash. You're going to marry trash. She said, I'll never marry a boy from this neighborhood. I'll never marry anybody that's like any of you. I don't belong in this neighborhood. I have been selected. I've been elected, and he's coming back for me. Oh, they laughed her to scorn. Every single morning, they would get up and say, well, where's your lover boy? Every single morning, they'd get up. Every night when she went to bed, they said, well, he didn't come today. And they'd laugh. One morning, she heard the blast of a horn and the crunch of tires on the driveway. She jumped from her bed and looked out of the second story window, and there he was behind the wheel. How many of you think that she awoke the others in the house? How many of you think that she tried to take anybody with her in the car? No, no. This was the ride she alone was prepared for. She tripped down those stairs and into her lover's arms, and they rode away in that fancy car for a life of wonderful love. Someday the last trump's going to sound. It'll be too late. At that time, we will simply be snatched away and every tear will be dried. I know it seems like we will weep for those that are left behind. I don't know how it will be handled, but I know that God will not let there be a pang of worry. Somehow we will be so focused on him that what is left behind, what's lost, what's forgotten will be forgotten and there'll be no tears. He's coming. Right now, let the world laugh at us. Let them say, well, he's waited 2,000 years. He's not coming. Did he come today? He didn't come today. He's never coming. But I'm telling you, Scripture tells us you will hear the honk of his horn in the driveway. The crunch of tires on gravel. And his voice calling to you, Awake, thou that sleepest, and come away with me. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. 
Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.